0: Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who have seen their income drastically reduced, perhaps have lost their jobs. I pray that you would bring encouragement to them this morning by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would remind them you have not left them, nor have you forsaken them. I pray, Father, that you would pour your love upon the hearts and souls of your people, that you would rekindle. Our own love for you is our first and greatest love. Father, would you please bring encouragement to your people? I pray for those who manage or own or run businesses. Father, would you give them wisdom in this uncertain time? Would you give them creative strategies? Would you provide for them? Father, in the midst of this, may we draw near to you. And how we thank you that you are always faithful and your love for us is steadfast. And now I'd like to pray these words from Psalm 40, written by King David over a thousand years before the time of Jesus. He wrote, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And now, Father, I pray for the encouragement of these words for your people that you would help us to keep our feet securely upon the rock of your faithfulness, that you would keep a song of praise in our mouths, and that those around us would see and put their trust in you, Lord. And we ask these things in your great name. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us this morning. We are continuing our series that we've called One Story we're stepping back and looking at the entirety of scripture from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation and seeing the unified theme that is there of God's one great plan of redemption for his people from beginning to end. This morning we come to two books really, double books, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and as we look at 1st and 2nd Samuel, our focus this morning is going to be on two key figures. King Saul and King David. I believe that the contrast between these two kings, the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, provides perhaps the greatest study in leadership that we find anywhere in Scripture. Whether your leadership is in the home or in the church or in in a school or in business or in medicine or law, I think you will find much that is applicable to an understanding of leadership that God approves in a study of the contrast between King Saul and King David. Now, the book of 1 Samuel opens in the early chapters with the prophet Samuel providing leadership, spiritual leadership for the people of Israel. Samuel becomes a transition figure. From the time when judges ruled in Israel, a time of about 400 years, to the time of the kings. The first king Saul, the second king David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find that Samuel is, is about to die. And he makes his sons judges in his place over Israel. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And if we read further in the book of 1 Samuel, we would see that his sons were in no way qualified to carry on his leadership in Israel. And so Israel requested a king. The people knew that Samuel's sons were inadequate as rulers the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him behold you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations but the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people and all they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me From being king over them. So Samuel then goes to the people of Israel and he warns them of the cost of having a king. He warns them that he's going to take taxes, he's going to draft you into his service. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you'll be his slaves. The people still insist on having a king. The people refused to obey obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to a city. Well, what happens next is that God tells Samuel that Saul Saul is to be chosen as the first king of Israel. Saul was outwardly impressive, uh, a head taller than all the people around him. And initially, Saul seemed to be somewhat humble. We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 9. The day before Saul came, the, the Lord had revealed to Samuel tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you'll anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people because their cries come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite? From the least of the tribes of Israel, And is not my clan the humblest of all the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? In other words, Saul Saul feels some inadequacy to be made the first king of Israel. There's a spark of humility in Saul. Unfortunately, that humility is not seen throughout his rule as king. So Saul is made king, the first king of Israel. And initially, he seems effective. God gives him a very significant early military victory, and so the people are very pleased to to follow Saul. Very soon, however, Saul would prove to be unfaithful to the Lord. One of the ways his unfaithfulness is seen is in his impatience to wait on God's guidance, God's instruction. Samuel tells Saul to wait for him seven days and that Samuel will then come to where Saul is, and he will offer burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. This is before the Israelites would then be let out to face the Philistines in battle. Well, the seven days came. Samuel had not yet shown up. Saul recognized the Philistines were gathering for battle around them, and Saul took matters into his own hands. He did that which was not appropriate for the king to do, And he himself offered burnt offerings and sacrifices. And uh, Samuel comes and confronts him and says, what have you done? It's not the place of the king to offer sacrifices before uh, God like this. And Saul tries to justify himself. Well, I, I saw the Philistines gathering and you weren't here. So I forced myself, I forced myself, did the offerings myself. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And notice these words. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, this was not the last time that Saul would prove impatient and unwilling to wait on God's guidance and instruction. But here Samuel announces that someone else is going to take his place and that someone would be a man after God's own heart. Furthermore, Saul was unwilling to obey God's very clear instruction. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, an interesting uh, account Emily read uh, from this chapter just a moment ago. But the chapter begins, 1 Samuel 15, with Samuel giving a directive to Saul from the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. In other words, I'm sending you Saul, take the army of Israel, wipe them out, wipe out the Amalekites. Well, later in the chapter, we read that Samuel discovers Saul didn't wipe out the Amalekites. He took what he wanted for himself of their provisions and so forth. And so Samuel approaches Saul and said, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, the people, not me, the people, those in our army, those who went with me, the people took of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You hear what Saul's doing? He's shifting the blame from himself to the people who followed him. And he's trying to come up with a religious justification and to say, well, we didn't destroy everything God said to destroy. We kept some of, it, some of it because, hey, we wanted to offer it to God. It would be like somebody saying, sure, I got this money illegally by selling drugs, but, hey, I'm going I'm to tithe on it to God. It's ridiculous. And so, Samuel says these famous words to Saul. They're some of the most important words in the book of 1 Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Now, these words in 1 Samuel 15 verses 22 and 23 are some of the most significant that we find in the book of 1 Samuel. Keep them in mind because we will hear them later in the book of Psalms. And then they're even going to be repeated, not in precise fashion, in the New Testament. The simple point, however, is that God delights in people who listen to his guidance and who obey his word, to obey, to listen. And it's because of this that God chose David to replace King Saul. Years later, the Apostle Paul, when he's preaching in the New Testament book of Acts, is giving a history of what God had done for the Israelites as he's drawing to a place where he'll tell the, the Israelites about Jesus. And he's reflecting on this time in Israel's history. And he says, They asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Saul proved to be impatient and insecure. When God began showing his power through David after David slew Goliath and had military exploits, Saul became insanely jealous of David and ultimately sought to take his life So, that much of the book of 1 Samuel includes David fleeing from Saul and uh, Saul trying to take his life. Saul was disobedient to God, unwilling to perfectly obey his word, insecure, and jealous. David, however, is called a man after my heart. This morning, I'd like to take a few minutes and just raise this question why? Why did God call David, King David, a man after his own heart. What do we learn from David about being people after God's own heart, leaders who lead in God's way? Why did God consider David a man after God's own heart? Number one, David showed the willingness to seek God and obey his guidance. One of the qualities we see in King David is a determination to know God's will, and to do it. Certainly, he didn't do it perfectly, as we'll see in just a moment. But often, he was very deliberate in his purpose of seeking God. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, David is leading a, a band of warring men who had come with him when he had to flee from Saul, who were his mighty men, his soldiers, his team, David was told the Philistines are fighting against this city of Keilah, and they're robbing the threshing floor. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? David's the leader now. His men, his faithful men, his army say, wait a minute now. We're questioning this guidance. We're fearful as it is. If we go fight the whole Philistine army, we're not so sure about that. So what does David do? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I'll give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock, struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Even though the choice was difficult, it must have required immense faith in what God had told him to do. David persevered, his men followed him, because they saw in him the willingness to seek God to discern his will and to obey it, to do it. Secondly, David took responsibility for his actions, and he humbled himself when confronted with his sin. Interesting situation with David in 1 Samuel chapter 2. As I mentioned, David had to flee from Saul while Saul was still reigning as king because Saul was insanely jealous of David. The prophet Samuel had told him that that he, Saul, would be rejected. Uh, he knew that David was, was next in line, so Saul was jealous. He was attempting to kill David. And while he was fleeing from Saul, David, and the account is in 1 Samuel chapter 21, went to a priest named Ahimelech. David needed food and he needed a weapon. Ahimelech gave David loaves of bread and he gave him a sword. And so David went on his way, but while David was there before Ahimelech, one of Saul's men was also there and he observed that the priest had given David food and a sword. He went back and told Saul. So Saul called Ahimelech he summoned him, and he brought him before him, and he said, What is this you have done helping my enemy? And Himal- Himalek said, Wait a minute now. David has been faithful to you. I didn't realize there was any, any issue with helping David. And Saul does something that's absolutely unbelievable. Saul turns to his servants, and he says to them, Kill Ahimelech and all 85 of these priests. Strike them down. It was such a grievous command that Saul's servants wouldn't do it. They wouldn't obey. So Doeg, the man who had told Saul uh, that David had gotten help, he did it. took his sword, killed Ahimelech, 85 people. One of Ahimelech's sons escaped. His name was Abiathar. And he went and found David and he told him. David said, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. That's remarkable to me. David did not cause their death. But here's a man who knew that his decision had resulted in bad consequences for others. He takes responsibility himself and he says to Abiathar, you stay with me from now on, you'll be safe here with me. David took responsibility for his actions, and David humbled himself when confronted with his sin. Now, we need to say this about David. Although he is remembered even in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart, David sinned in a very horrible and grievous way, and his sin is recorded for us in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, You will know this story. It begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, but David had not gone out to battle. David, one afternoon, gets up from his couch, he walks on the roof of his house, and the Bible says that he sees a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of them said, is not this Bathsheba, the wife, the daughter of Elam? Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite and David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her she returned her house the woman conceived and sent and told David I'm pregnant well David's committed adultery with the wife of another man but things get worse then David tries to arrange things so that Uriah will go home to be with his wife. Uriah is one of his great faithful soldiers out at war with David's army. But Uriah comes and reports to David he will not go to his own home. He's too honorable. He says, how can I go to my own home when the other soldiers are out at war? Ultimately, David arranges to have Uriah, his faithful soldier, put to death in battle deliberately. So David's guilty now of adultery, of murder, in a really grievous, grievous way. So God's not going to leave things as they are. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends to David Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet must have been a very, very bold man, because he was going to confront King David with his sin. And if David had not been a teachable person, he could have had Nathan's head removed in an instant. So Nathan the prophet is sent by God to confront David about his sin. And he begins by telling David a parable. And he says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had herds and flocks of all kinds. The poor man had one little ewe lamb. It had grown up with his children. It slept in his arms and was almost like a daughter to him. Well, the rich man had a traveler come to town and wanted to prepare a feast for him. And he didn't want to use any of his own flocks and herds. And he took that little ewe lamb, slaughtered it for his guest. King David, hearing this parable, says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan the prophet looked at David and said, you are the man. You are the man. Well, Nathan goes on to describe the judgment that is going to come upon King David. And he says to him, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He begins to tell David, someone from his own home is going to rise against him, which would happen later when his son Absalom would attempt to overthrow David's throne. But after this pronunciation, David says to Nathan, these words, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. Now we should add, there were severe consequences for David's sin. The first being that Nathan goes on to say, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die point I want to stress, though, is this. David knew how to repent. He knew how to humble himself when he had done wrong, and we have a record of his repentance in the book of Psalms. Psalm 51 is the composition that comes out of this point in David's life. Psalm 51 has a little historical note in its heading that tells us very specifically that it comes at this point in time. It's a psalm, Scripture tells us, that that occurs when Nathan the prophet went to him, went to David after this occasion in his life to pronounce this judgment. David, despite the seriousness of his sin, knew how to repent. David took responsibility for his actions, as horrible as they were in some cases. And he knew how to humble himself when confronted with his sin. There's a third thing now I'd like to share about David that I think perhaps as much as anything else makes him, made him a man after God's own heart. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's not a well-known story of David, but I think it's perhaps my favorite one. And it shows us how David learned to find his strength in God. In the latter chapters of 1 Samuel, David is continuing to flee from King Saul, and he has a band of soldiers with him, about 600 men. And as they have fled from Saul, they're actually living in Philistine territory. The Philistines were arch enemies of Israel. You may remember the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, a Philistine Giant. But David at this point had found favor with Achish, the Philistine king, and Achish had allowed David and his band of men to live in one of the Philistine cities called Ziklag. There David lived separately with the Philistines with his soldiers, but he found great favor in the eyes of the Philistine king Achish, so much so that Achish considered David somewhat of a bodyguard and grew to really respect and love him. Well, there came a day when the Philistines were going out to battle, and it just happened they were going out to battle against Israel. And Achish welcomed David and his army of 600 to join him in battle against the Philistines, and David and his men prepared to go. We can imagine, the scripture doesn't say, but we can imagine that David's men may have been questioning his leadership at this time, but they're following him. And as they join the Philistine troops and they're moving toward battle, the commanders of the Philistine army look to the king and go, what are these Hebrews doing here with us? What are they doing? They're not going with us to battle. How better could David uh, endear himself to King Saul than by turning against us in the battle? No way, they're not going with us. You send them back. So David and his band of men were sent back to the city in Philistine Terry where they lived. It was called Ziklag. And we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now David is going to get the blame. For taking his army away from their city, leaving it unprotected, going to join the Philistines, and then three days later, having been sent back and finding the situation they found. And here's what happens in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 30. And David was greatly distressed for the people, and the people, this is a reference to his own men, his mighty men, his faithful soldiers, the ones who had followed him in the midst of adversity. The people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. David now has no friend, no one standing with him. His closest supporters, his mighty men, his band of soldiers, they're talking about stoning him to death. So what does he do? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I wish we were told here exactly what he did to strengthen himself. Some versions say he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. But if we read the book of Psalms, throughout the book of Psalms, we'll find David talking about God being his strength. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with strength. David learned how to turn to God in the midst of adversity and find his strength there from him. This, I think, perhaps over anything else, is why David is remembered as a man after God's own heart. King Saul, when he got desperate, Went to a medium for help, as we read in the book of 1 Samuel. King David, when he got desperate, went to God. Went to God. Encouraged himself. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And it is because of this that King David plays an incredibly significant role in God's great overarching one story plan. David, King David, wrote much of our book of Psalms. And many of the Psalms are written out of this period in David's life when he is fleeing from King Saul. He's living in the desert. He's living in caves. And uh, he's facing adversity. And this is why so many of the Psalms teach us how to turn to God in the midst of adversity. The Psalm I read, Before the messages we were praying this morning, when David talked about being in a miry pit, being brought out of a bog, that was Psalm 40. But if we continued in Psalm 40, in verses 6 through 8, we would read these words, and they sound very similar to the words that the prophet Samuel spoke to King Saul. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your laws within my heart. It's not burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's hearing and doing the will of God. David's now teaching us this in the book of Psalms. But there's more to these words. Much, much more. One of the many ways that David fits into God's one-story plan. Because when we look to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, we find these words being quoted. And they're quoted and applied to Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Jesus Christ, the superiority of his sacrifice on the cross over all the Old Testament sacrifices of uh, bulls and goats which were given to temporarily atone for the sins of the people. And the writer of Hebrews, writing about the superiority superiority of Christ, writes these words, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins consequently when Christ came into the world he said quote now notice these words they are quoting from Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8 they were written by King David they seem to be a reflection upon what Samuel said to Saul when Christ came into the world he said quote sacrifices and offerings you've not desired but a body you've prepared for me And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What is this saying? Jesus submitted himself perfectly and fully to the will of God. David, though he was a man after God's own heart, had many failures, as we've already seen. Jesus had none. The prophet Isaiah would say regarding the Messiah, Jesus, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Isaiah was speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, not my will, your will be done. Behold, I've come to do your will. Jesus would perfectly do the will of God, and on the cross, he would allow himself to be sacrificed, the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sin of the world and through the shedding of his blood and his resurrection from the dead. Those of us who put our faith, our trust in him, are forgiven by God despite the fact that we many times have not done his will. By that will, the will of Christ, the will of God, we have been sanctified, set apart, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The call for us is to put our trust wholly in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, as we reflect back on the books of First and 2 Samuel, on King Saul and King David, I want to raise just a few questions by way of application as we're considering this part of Scripture. Number one, am I justifying any disobedience to God's Word? That's what Saul did. Tempted to justify compromises against God's Word and will. Am I yielding my will, willing to yield my will, to to the counsel of God's word? Am I, like David, a person after God's heart? And then finally and most importantly, am I trusting completely in the sacrifice of Jesus to take away my sins? It is being able to say yes to this final question That enables us to say yes to doing his will as it's presented to us in his word. Because it is only as Jesus comes into our lives by the Holy Spirit making our hearts new. That the word and will of God is then so written on our hearts that we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to obey it. So my first and greatest encouragement to you today is to put your trust wholly and completely in what Jesus did on the cross for you. Would you join me now as we pray? Father, I pray for each one listening today. I pray the Holy Spirit would bring them encouragement and in this time of great uncertainty in which we're living. Would you draw us by your spirit to a deeper devotion so that each one of us would be people after your own heart? Father, for anyone listening who has not yet embraced the salvation of Jesus provided in his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, would you bring that person to a place of humble recognition of sin and need and of faith and trust in Jesus? For you have said, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we pray in the great name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.